This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Phil Cunliffe, author of the book, The New 20 Years Crisis, a critique of international relations, 1999 to 2019. Phil, welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, Mark, and thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we're, we're, delighted, we're delighted to have you on our podcast. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Yeah, so I'm, um, I'm an academic in um, Britain at the University of Kent, where I've worked for um, just over 10 years now. And um, so I finished, my, I finished my doctorate just over 10 years ago as well. And um, in that time, I suppose my concerns over the last, uh, the last 10 years or so have been thinking about different um, aspects of liberal international order. Um, a lot of it concerned with the dynamics of sovereignty and military intervention, peacekeeping in particular, the role of the United Nations in conflict management. These are the things that have um, that have uh, been my preoccupation for the last um, the last ten years. And it's more recently um, with this book, for instance, that I've tried to scale up some of these insights into broader accounts of international politics and to provide a broader outlook on the dynamics of. Um, the liberal international order and debates around it as well. It's a very interesting book, and it's one that uh, ties into a very famous work by, uh, I think his name is Edward Halletcar, uh, t- where he talked about the 20 Years Crisis, a book that came out on the eve of, of the Second World War. What was it that led you to you know, make the decision to make that leap now? And why did you choose uh, Carr's work as your uh, springboard or your template? So it was the when the when the book was conceived a couple of years ago, well, or even less, perhaps, perhaps uh, even something like 18 months ago, because it was written um, in a kind of um, period of uh, particular intensity and um, how far it benefits from the intensity of the of the moment with everything that has happened in global politics over the last few years, including here in Britain with Brexit is up for the reader to judge. But um, it was on the eve of 2019, which was the 80th, 80th um, anniversary of the publication of Carr's book that you mentioned, um, The 20 Years Crisis. And it's for a long time, it's been taken as a foundational work in the discipline of international relations. And it concerns its Carr's critique, um, as he styles it, his realist critique of liberal utopianism, of liberal idealism, of the interwar period and how the liberal international order crumbled in the interwar period. And so it has this totemic status within the discipline. 
um, as not only accounting for the um, failures of liberal international order in that period and how that leads to the Second World War, but also as inaugurating what was called um, the first great debate. So the first debate within the discipline over some basic foundational questions as to what uh, what kind of response is adequate to understanding international politics and whether that should be focused on questions of state power, state interest and um, the conflict for power between states, or whether that should be focused on efforts to produce international cooperation at the level of international organization and international law. And Carr famously, notoriously plumped for, um, for the former, that it should be firmly that the discipline um, the infant science, as he called it, of international politics should be firmly focused on um, the competition for power between states and how this shapes not only um, actual political outcomes and dynamics, but also how it conditions all of our frameworks. So uh, given the intensity of debates on liberal international order in the last few years, um, connected to growing, you know, growing geopolitical rivalry between the US and China, um, uh, the election of Donald Trump and his efforts to restructure America's alliances around the world, um, his critique of liberal internationalism and how it is, um, according to him, how it has uh, undermined America's status, allowed allies to free ride on America's generosity. All of these, um, all of these issues that arose in the last few years seem to, well, they all they all raised again the debates over liberal international order, and it was in that context that I thought it would be worth. Um, returning to an iconic text and using the optics provided by E.H. Carr to see how far they still applied to our own contemporary crisis of liberal international order. And the reason I chose Carr was um, it wasn't just because of the iconic um, the iconic status of his text um, or the fact that it was an anniversary year for, um, for um, the publication of Carr's work, but also because he himself, I think, had been overlooked. So there have been plenty of realist criticisms of um, liberal international order in the last few years, and particularly coming from US-based academics and analysts, so people like Stephen M. Welt or um, John G. Mearsheimer at Chicago, or Andrew Basovich, the um, strategic theorist and military historian who's at Boston. And they've all provided um, tremendously incisive and cutting analyses of the failures of um, US nation building, the failures of US grand strategy, uh, what they call liberal hegemony in the foreign policy of the U.S. that has led to perpetual war in the Middle East and the U.S. being embroiled in all of these conflicts from Libya to Afghanistan and further afield even. And so there have been plenty of criticisms um, drawing on U.S.-based accounts of international order. And so with Carr, I explicitly wanted to bring into the picture a British realist thinker and also to bring into the picture his specific criticisms of European liberalism, of European politics, and to draw on the patrimony, I suppose, of, um, of British international relations thought, because it seemed to me um, important to broaden out the debate beyond the critique of US foreign policy, essentially, and US grand strategy, to understand the dynamics of international order in a broader vein, and I thought the car would allow me to do that. I really like uh, what you mentioned uh, about a moment ago about how Carr is sort of this founding figure in international relations, because as you explain in your book, you're not just, you know, offering a critique of uh, the liberal international order and where it is at this point in time, but you're also 
examining the discipline itself and the way which is steered so far afield of this that it, it, it has, in effect, you know, uh, mirrors a lot of the same mistakes and woolly thinking uh, that you have seen in a lot of international relations practice uh, that you're talking about in terms of the liberal order and utopianism. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is the other element that I wanted to pursue in the book. So like I say, like some of these um, American realists and American analysts have been uh, very cutting in exposing the naivety and the idealism and the sheer dogmatism of um, liberal foreign policy based around democratization, human rights, um, humanitarian intervention, nation building, these kinds of shibboleths that have dominated um, American foreign policy for so long. Um, but there I wanted to expand it to go beyond just the limits of liberal foreign policy, but also to consider international relations theories more broadly. And um, so I extend them to, or I extend the critique to look at um, constructivist theories and critical theories of international relations, because I think some of the maladies of our, or limits of our thinking, and particularly the utopian elements of those, um, as identified by Carr, have been replicated um, in these new theories, which kind of they've grown, they've grown up in the last 30 years since the end of the Cold War. And in that context, um, these new kind of theories of international politics, constructivism and critical theories have tended to emphasize the malleability of politics and social life. The, as the name suggests, constructivism, that we can construct our world, we can, const we can reconstruct the world order should we so choose. So the emphasis on agency, on voluntarism, on plasticity, I think it, um, it expressed the kind of the hopes and the aspirations of... Uh, um, world would seem to be far more open to reshaping in the aftermath of the Cold War, that the world um, looked as if it was um, it could be changed, um, that there was scope to reshape it in profound and lasting ways that would make it more uh, pleasant and hospitable and benevolent, ultimately. And so those theories, I think, have um, they've fed directly into some of the conceits and the um, idealism and the blindsidedness of international politics. This emphasis on the fundamental, like I say, the plasticity of politics, I think was vastly overstated. And what I think Carr allows us to do, and what I try to do in the book is that he draws attention to the link between power and the structure of theoretical, um, of theoretical insight. And I think that's paralleled, or we can see this in the character of the theories that have dominated in international relations for the last 30 years or so, and this distribution of power in the international order. And so I make the claim in the book that the rise to prominence, particularly of constructivist um, thinking in the discipline, it reflects a unipolar world. It reflects the conceit of a world in which um, so much power is concentrated in one center in, in the West, and in particular in the US, that there was this, that there was, that um, it came to be seen that it was possible to profoundly reshape the entire world and that there would be no uh, consequences or ramifications for the balance of power, that there was no limit essentially to how far power could reach, but that there was no consciousness of this at the same time. So because the theories were constructed in such a way that they um, uh, believed that they were analyzing, uh, you know, a whole, that they believed that they were adopting a new set of lenses, which means that they saw the world in an entirely new way, and they became entirely disconnected from underlying questions of power, state interest, 
and basic questions of politics, that it always involves the competition for power, that it always involves competition between states, that it always involves um, a clash of differing interests. And all of these very basic insights that you think would be um, apparent to scholars of world politics have all been lost, I think, as the result of the elevation of these uh, theories that emphasize uh, human agency and that emphasize the fundamental malleability of politics. And so I hope that Carr allows us to draw attention to the character of theories and the kind of the shape and form that particular theories take and the underlying distribution and character of power in international politics. And it seems to me there is a connection, that we can see the connection in the last 30 years. And it's essentially the, um, the, the, the emphasis in these theories on the capacity to change the world. I think that reflects a world in which there was seen to be no limit to the power of the West and to the power of the US in particular. I like that critique you make in your introduction, where you're talking about how so much of the theory has ignored what you've just described, so long as they're right on particular issues. And, and, and the one you focus on is, is the Iraq war in 2003, and I, I, especially like the, the phrase, the great alibi. It's, it's because they were against the Iraq war, that therefore that it, there's nothing wrong with the approach. It's about how you apply it. And so they're not really considering too deeply some of the fundamental mistaken assumptions or mistaken approaches that have caused them to lose sight of what you describe in terms of the realism of, of, of state interaction and state power. Yeah. And I mean, you can probably count supporters of the Iraq war um, in the discipline, at least, um, as, you know, outside of the kind of the neocon circles around the George Bush presidency of the time. I mean, you could count the supporters of the Iraq war in the discipline, maybe on the fingers of one hand, I'd say, you know, um, everybody opposed it. Um, but at the same time, everyone um, that, like I say, and like you, like you mentioned, it became the alibi for being essentially for um, morally um, claiming the moral high ground in opposing this deeply unpopular military intervention, but then having the credit at the same time to ignore all the um, other kind of very similar episodes of military intervention that seemed to, um, you know, that, that built on Iraq or mirrored what, was, what happened in Iraq, most notably Libya. Um, but also that there was no uh, examination or no willingness to take the consequences or implications of what Iraq actually manifested. And I mean, it's very striking in terms of um, how, and this is what I try to do in the book, is to compare how international relations as a set of theories and as a discipline has failed to either to take the intellectual initiative in terms of um, being able to discern what um, Iraq meant for the future of world politics, and also how it's failed to adapt to the changes in world order when compared to political science or to the discipline of economics, where I think for all their flaws, um, both of these other um, branches of uh, academic investigation, of scholarly investigation, have adapted better to the dramatic changes in world politics, in national politics over the last few years than international relations. And this is despite the fact that we should have had longer to do it, given that the war in Iraq has been you know, continuous since 2003, at least, if not indeed since the early 1990s. And some of the things that I think Iraq, if we'd been attentive, instead of um, kind of morally um, distancing, you know, kind of claiming the moral virtue of being opposed to the war, 
instead of simply doing that, but if we'd been attentive to some of the uh, surrounding politics of the Iraq war, I think it would have led us to deeper insights about the direction in which politics in the region and in the world was headed. Mm. So some of the examples I mentioned were, for instance, the inability of um, the U.S. to really build a firm um, alliance around uh, the military intervention. Not only did you know they fail to take the UN Security Council, but they failed to get, um, say, Turkey to allow, famously, to allow U.S. troops to advance into um, into Iraq from the north. Um, they ended up, you know, supposedly a war that was. Uh, waged for the benefit of U.S. oil corporations, which was a widespread criticism at the time, not only in, you know, not only kind of uh, in popular debate, but also in academic debate. And it's ended up, in fact, that it's Chinese oil companies that have kind of encroached on Iraqi oil fields and that seem to have benefited more than U.S. oil corporations. Um, the fact that the U.S. engaged in a war on terror, this kind of omnidirectional, limitless war, um, with inflated, you know, expanding its military spending, expanding its commitments at the same time as the Bush administration of the day um, was trying, was uh, ramming through tax cuts, as well as not seeking, you know, as well as um, refusing to mobilize or rally U.S. society to a um, to the kind of collective effort that one would think would be um, necessitated by an omni directional war with um, which was lim un unlimited in time and space and instead um, you know they ended up kind of relying on redeploying um, the same reservists over and over again um, and so I think you know these this stored up problems not only in terms of um, the uh, not only in terms of kind of uh, the problems of US um, uh, problems of US debt and problems of uh, for the US economy but also just in terms of say uh, military families and the war weariness of um, the US population and how that has fed into um, support for and even indeed the election of Donald Trump one of the most highly correlated factors of um, of uh, voting for um, for Donald Trump in 2016, where um, families, uh, military families who had had veterans and had had relatives deploying abroad on repeat tours, and they were deeply disenchanted and wary of the liberal interventionism which had put the U.S. in permanent kind of military deployment for the last 20 years. So, all of this is to say that um, we should have been further ahead than we were, and we have no excuses. And Iraq, instead of instead of the invasion of Iraq and giving us the opportunity to discern the pattern of politics um, as it would unfold, which is to say the politics we've been through for the last few years, instead it became the excuse to um, kind of wash our hands of having to undertake any further analysis and to step back. And that's why I call it the great alibi. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. I'd like to take a step back and, and talk a bit about the liberal international order that you describe is in situate in the uh, you know the 1990s. What was it in general terms, 
And how did it fail? In, 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 we've already talked about the particular, say, the Iraq war. We've talked about Libya. You mentioned Mali, uh, Syria. But what broadly were the errors uh, at work that are, uh, are the connecting factor in all of these different uh, conflict areas? And, 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 and how do they, those uh, factors reflect that failure? So the I date the so I date our twenty year crisis across the period nineteen ninety nine to two thousand nineteen, in which I think you see the which is to say analogously to Carr's interwar crisis between nineteen nineteen and nineteen thirty nine, um, when Carr kind of framed it in that way, he meant to say that the problems that were emerging in the nineteen thirties or that fully erupted by the late nineteen thirties, that the seeds of those problems were sown in the aftermath of the of the um, First World War. So they were sown in 1919. And this is what made it a kind of integrated um, crisis of a peace. And so I wanted to make the same claim in saying that in 1999 to 2019, the seeds were sown, the seeds of our contemporary problems were sown in um, 1999, which is to say in the peak of the, um, in the peak of the post-Cold War period. And there are two two events in particular, which I think justify the identification of 1999 as a turning point. The first is um, the Kosovo War. So the NATO bombing of what was then Yugoslavia um, to halt the um, uh, Serbian counterinsurgency campaign in the breakaway province of, of what was then the breakaway province of Kosovo. And the NATO bombing was important in also, I mean, it was a high point of the liberal humanitarianism of that particular period. Um, it was a war which was justified in the most kind of grandiloquent and sweeping terms as a war for civilization itself, um, and was explicitly a war for human rights, ending dictatorship, genocide, and ending human suffering. And it also um, went ahead without the imprimatur of the UN Security Council. And so um, it set the stage for the re a restructuring of the way in which we view sovereignty and intervention and human rights, and in which um, the rights of states to non-intervention were dramatically curtailed in the wake of the Kosovo conflict. The other thing that was particularly so important and in the way in which it also helped um, set the stage for Iraq was the fact that there was no um, support from the United Nations, so that it was a war that was conducted in the face of the opposition of the UN because um, the Chinese and Russians threatened to veto it in the UN Security Council. And that, again, set the stage for Iraq. So it laid the ground for a greater willingness to use, to wage war for liberal purposes, to restructure the international order according to um, uh, according to liberal precepts of um, defending human rights, elevating the rights of individuals over the rights of sovereign states, um, laying the groundwork for the expansion of democracy and general, uh, generally expanding the liberal idealism and all of the all of that that came in the afterglow of the end of the Cold War. Um, and that story, you know, that story is fairly familiar and it matches with um, many accounts of the um, ex overextension of liberal idealism and what other authors have called liberal hegemony. The second element, which I think is overlooked, but I want to insist is equally important, if not perhaps even more important in 1999, is the emergence of the euro. So it's when the um, euro was launched on international financial markets. So when the uh, when several different currencies in Western Europe were united into a single currency zone, but without a monetary union, without a fiscal union. 
And this laid the ground for um, the debt crisis that would emerge in the aftermath of two thousand, in the aftermath of the global financial crash of two thousand and eight, and would then and still continues to um, roil the European Union and the eurozone right to this day. And the significance of that is that the um, I want to insist that the attempt to build a monetary union without a fiscal union or a political union in Europe is even if it is not as um, ostentatiously violent and bloody as the destruction of Libya or Iraq um, or intervention or for the forever war in Afghanistan, it is nonetheless a monument to liberal utopian folly. Um, the attempt to build a, you know, the attempt to build this kind of new order without the actual, without attention to the actual hard political questions of sovereignty, of identity, of state power. Um, I think it speaks to a folly which in many ways is even greater than the idea that um, the US was going to build a functioning liberal democracy in Afghanistan or that um, Iraq would be the beginning of a wave of democratic renewal and um, uh, revitalization across the whole Middle East. You know, those, I mean, everyone sees those as follies, but I think we forget that there is um, an even, perhaps an even greater folly and perhaps less bloody, but no less ultimately destructive in the attempt to build the Eurozone and the, the devastating effects of that um, across and particularly across the southern tier of the Eurozone, the debt-prone economies of um, the Mediterranean countries. I mean, it is um, it is difficult to understate how calamitous the effect of the Eurozone has been. Um, so to give one example, which was um, given by a historian, I mean, if you saw the kind of um, uh, unemployment rate, say, in a, in a state of the US that you had seen in um, Spain, for instance, during the um, heyday of the Eurozone debt crisis, in all likelihood, a governor in the U.S. would have called the national, would have called the, sorry, would have called the state-level emergency, um, and but there was nothing capable. There was simply no capacity to um, resolve those issues in the eurozone the way that there is in the U.S. because the U.S. is a single country, whereas the eurozone is, like I say, a monetary union without an actual fiscal union, and without the capacity to redistribute resources from a single center, or to call upon um, the kind of centralized aid that is available in the US and that allows for um, the capacity to buffer um, economic shocks that um, on the scale that the Eurozone saw. So um, it's a, to get back to your question, I, the, those are the two events that, are, that begin, that um, emerge in 1999, the Kosovo War and the establishment of the Eurozone, which grows over the period of the, of the 20 years crisis as I, as I lay it out, and that these crises then, I think, kind of work their way through um, until, the, until 2019, that we're now stuck in a, um, that the European Union is essentially um, immobilized, financially and economically um, still caught in the trap, which was um, laid for it um, through its construction of the Eurozone, and uh, with Kosovo, we see that the forever war and the permanent war is the legacy of, um, of, that, of the NATO intervention in Kosovo. And I should add also, um, just quickly to add to that, is not, it's not just obviously permanent war, isn't just the US and Afghanistan, um, but also the French in Mali. 
um, and the French indeed across um, across Northwest Africa. So there is an equivalent kind of permanent um, an equivalent forever war happening there. That is the product of liberal interventionism and of the same kind of liberal idealism and the same kind of hopes for um, democratize, re-democratizing entire regions. And all of that is a consequence of this um, of these failed strategies. So it's not restricted. These problems are not restricted to um, the fal- the the uh, the short sightedness of U.S. foreign policy. They are problems that are much more pathological and much more deeply embedded in Western politics and Western foreign policy than just a failure or a lapse of um, U.S. grand strategy or political vision. I think you make that point very well across your entire book. Then in your third chapter, you focus more specifically upon the European example. And I'd like to take a, a few moments to elaborate upon some of what you're talking about. The uh as you put it very nicely, the utopian ideal of the of, of what the EU was supposed to represent and, and what it doesn't, and, and also the degree to which those failures are back in the late 1990s with not just the the euro but a lot of the assumptions that subsequently went along with that have you know had played their own share in terms of the 20 years crisis, which. As you frame it, if I may, you know, draw back from this, some of the earlier chapters, really breaks down to this notion of almost like a a, a, a a contrast or a conflict between sovereignty and governance, between the notion of the of the of the people's will, which is we nowadays see expressed in terms of say uh, Brexit, uh, the National Front in France. Uh, what you saw in in, in Greece uh, at the height of the eurozone crisis, uh, and and uh, you know the notion of of you know the the the, the you know Brussels crats or the eurocrats in Brussels, uh, you know basically governing however they see fit with very little concern about accountability to any sort of elected body whatsoever. Yeah, and the um, what I what is particularly striking about this is the fact that. Um, it vindicates so much of Carr's analysis from the interwar period. So Carr made the case in the interwar period that with the that the liberal international order was effectively a it was a projection of U.S. Um, kind of U.S. naivety um, under Woodrow Wilson, and it was projected into the war kind of the devastated and war weary continent of Europe from a country that had had that had been so fortunate in terms of um, the 19th century. The U.S. had expanded enormously economically, politically, geographically, and therefore it had no inkling of the kinds of um, uh, the kinds of uh, difficulties and tensions that European states found themselves in. And in particular, what Carr says is that the liberal liberal politics was unable to withstand um, the incursions of mass politics. So the expansion of the franchise, the incorporation of um, of working class and urban voters into political systems of this period, the attempt to incorporate the masses into politics, um, the reduction of property franchises for um, for voting rights, all of this was um, is simply incapable of uh, being absorbed within liberal international politics. And this is what for him made the case for a different a different kind of model. The, inc- the um, incompatibility between the uh, regulations and um, restrictions of liberal international politics with the demands of um, mass national politics. And so what's striking about the European Union is that it has been explicitly constructed through um, evacuating mass politics. 
So evacuating mass, the demands of mass national politics from the way in which the European Union conducts itself. And so what I mean by that is that the whole purpose of the European Union is to insulate core areas of, I mean, central, you know, central political questions from um, the influence of democratic politics. And it does this, obviously, by extracting them from the domestic arena and insulating them at the supranational level. Um, so the, I mean, the, you know, I mean, if we compare, so one element that I pick up on, for instance, if we think of the Supreme Court, um, which is the, the, you know, one of the least democratic elements of the U.S. political system, it's nonetheless envisioned as part of a series of checks and balances that are integrated into a single, in, um, a single polity, a single political system. Whereas the equivalent body in the European Union, the European Court of Justice, which is a deeply, um, you know, it's a deeply uh, conservative court with respect to, say, um, clashes between labor and capital. It uh, routinely finds in favor of um, corporations and bosses at the expense of labor. And but this, the European equivalent of the of the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, is um, it has it's not integrated as part of a single political system there is no way to override it um it is complete supreme authority over the member states of the european union and it is not part of a single coherent polity um because the kind of the other bodies of the european union are not designed to function as part of an integrated political system they're designed to keep politics or political decision making core areas of policy away from contamination by mass politics um, at a supranational level, so taken away from, from uh, extracted from domestic level politics. And so what you have effectively is um, the reverse of what Carr diagnosed in the interwar period, that the European Union has been successfully built, this utopian, as I style it, this kind of utopian harmony of interests in which um, governments and elites across Europe have constructed this a tremendously, in one sense, a tremendously impressive edifice of international cooperation, but it's been built at the cost of being insulated from national politics, from mass politics and from democratic legitimization. And this is what roils European politics at the moment. Um, the disconnect, the profound lack of um, democratic legitimacy of all of these structures of cooperation. And as I say, they... Um, there are a remarkable vindication of Carr's analysis that the liberal international politics of the European Union has only been sustained by keeping mass national politics at bay, by keeping democratic politics at bay. And this is still remains the central issue of the European Union, the lack of legitimation, the lack of democratic legitimation and the lack of any single um, political identity within which liberal politics in Europe can be sustained. You conclude your book by talking about the, you know, the uh, next, what goes on beyond this. I was wondering if you could perhaps uh, offer first what some of the, uh, you know, conclusions you've reached after having explained these issues and where you see uh, both the international relations going uh, are, are, could potentially be like, you know, if these trends are continue and also how your discipline could uh, respond more effectively to these issues and perhaps offer us, uh, you know, a better understanding of, of these problems and, and, and how we might be able to solve them. So I suppose the um, what I try to do in the book is not just to apply the Karian framework 
and his critique of um, utopian idealism and the political infantilism and naivety of which he's so scathing, but also to try and go beyond the Karian framework, which is to say that the um, the very fact that we uh, have been through these repeat cycles of liberal fragmentation, decline and collapse, um, and then kind of political restructuring suggests to me that to a certain extent um, we live, you know, there's uh, that we these are built into our ideological frameworks and our institutional frameworks, this terror of political change and this um, fear that liberal, that the collapse of liberal institutions and that the collapse of liberal politics will inevitably tip us into uh, you know, the maelstrom of catastrophe, of international um, war, of the disintegration of international order, and ultimately fascism and world war and chaos and conflict. And so I think the very, you know, this the sense that we perpetually inhabit an interregnum between world wars, the sense that any kind of change to liberal international order will inevitably result in this kind of complete chaos. I think that is also the fear that is also something that we have to get beyond and so the fact that we've been through a cycle of um, a 20-year cycle of political of the decline of liberal international order and now it's um, being it's um, restructuring over the last few years and the fact that that hasn't resulted in world war I think you know that's something from which we should draw solace but also draw conclude you know the right conclusion which is to my mind that we should not be uh, we should not allow ourselves to live in fear of the patterns and cycles of the 20th century. Now, we should be willing to restructure the inherited institutions and practices and norms um, of 20th century politics without fear that this will inevitably pitch us into chaos and cataclysm and world war and dictatorship and genocide and the rest of it. So... I think that would be the that's what I try to put across in the book in the concluding part of the book is that the very fact that we've managed to that these cyclical patterns of liberal fragmentation and decline occur across um you know not only in the most recent kind of 20 years crisis but across the course of the 20th century as well that suggests to me that we shouldn't be afraid to seek to mount more ambitious visions of political change that we can afford to do that and that in order to kind of uh, in order to escape this universe in which we're constantly um, we're const we feel like we're constantly on the brink of this terrible calamity that if we're to ever escape that then we have to be willing to mount more fundamental projects of political transformation than we've seen so far and indeed to go beyond the um, the moderate restraint that is often um, offered up in liberal institutions and in terms of liberal visions of politics. And with regard to your, the second part of your question as to how that might affect the uh, discipline of international relations, I would, whether or not, so I make the case that we've, we're emerging into a world in which there is um, more power political competition. And this is reflected in the, you know, relative uh, diminution of U.S. power. So it's um, it's obviously not to suggest that the U.S. is in kind of any uh, terminal decline or anything as dramatic or overblown as that. But it would be, I think, it's legitimate 
to say that um, relative to other states, and in particular relative to China, that the margin of U.S. supremacy has been eroded. And that as a result of this, we will end up in a world in which there is more, there are more checks and limits to what the U.S. is capable of in terms of international politics, more checks on U.S. power. Um, and correspondingly, I think, uh, more power political competition than we're used to seeing. Mm. I would like to hope that that will focus minds and that will cut away from some of the um, uh, more, more kind of uh, exotic and baroque forms of international relations theorizing that we've seen in the last few years that have um, kind of overgrown um, the basic features of international political life and made it so difficult to actually identify the most important kind of political questions. Whether or not that happens, I'm not sure, um, because I think there is a um, there's obviously there's always an institutional lag in the academy between changes in the outside world and the way in which academic disciplines restructure themselves in order to respond to um, those changes. Um, but also that the uh, way in which international relations has completely lost any sense of uh, intellectual proportion or limit or um, any sense of uh, coherence in the way in which it thinks about international politics. That is, I think, um, I fear it's very deeply rooted and it will take a long time before it's capable of um, uh, addressing the world of international politics with greater lucidity and insight, um, because that's been sorely lacking, I think, for the last 20 years. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yeah, sure. So... Um, at the moment, I'm trying to think through the uh, consequences or the viability of certain kinds of liberal conflict management in a world in which we have more geopolitical rivalry. And this is particularly with respect to um, United Nations peacekeeping. So um, if we're, I'm essentially, uh, UN peacekeeping grew up in the, um, it emerged in the Cold War era of bipolarity. It's boomed in the era of unipolarity, and it's an, an important and overlooked part of liberal international order. It has allowed um, uh, nation building and all sorts of um, grand experiments in liberal engineering in post-conflict countries to take place with very little account of the costs in terms of um, blood and treasure or in terms indeed of the um, what are the actual kind of political consequences and and implications of these nation building experiments. So it's boomed in the era of unipolarity. And um, what I'm trying to uh, analyze is what will happen to these conflict management practices in a world in which um, we might, it might be a bipolar world between US, US and China, or a multipolar world in which um, there's even more kind of competition for power, say, perhaps between the US, China, Russia, India, and maybe others as well. So trying to think about how what conflict management looks like in a world in which there is far more profound competition and geopolitical rivalry than we've seen for a long time. Sounds like a very worthy compliment to, uh, you're basically practicing what you preach in terms of making something that applies to the, the very real world in which we seem to be developing into. I, I hope so. Um, and I also hope that it would also uh, provide, again, and also lead to new insights about perhaps new ways to do things as well and new institutions and that we don't need to be, feel committed to trying to perpetuate um, liberal institutions of one period and trying to prolong their life artificially in a profoundly different era. Well, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us, Philip. We have a wonderful day. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.